Good morning, Italy, and welcome to Behind the Lights with me, Seb. And me, Jonna. As always, we pay respect to the traditional custodians of the land where you're coming from, the Gadigal people of the Aurora Nation. And Jono, this is probably possibly one of the largest sporting weekends we've seen in 2021. Um, a couple of huge or some huge sporting events took place over the weekend. Um, we'll start, though, with the NRL. Um, obviously, Origin Week, so it was a shortened round. Uh, game three, as we know now, has been moved to the Gold Coast due to the COVID outbreak here in Sydney. Uh, but the four games that did take place over the weekend, the Raiders upset the Seagulls 30 points to 16. The Rabbitohs defeated the Cowboys 46 to 18. The Roosters defeated the Bulldogs 22 points to 16, while the Sharks defeated the Warriors 20 points to 12. So the top four stays the same while the Roosters jump back into fifth. Um, obviously still a very tight battle for that, especially that seventh and eighth spot. Um, we have a few teams obviously jostling down there. So we'll continue to look with keen interest as the season uh, approaches the finals. In the AFL, um, a couple of big clashes here. Melbourne defeated Port Adelaide 86-55. to Essendon smashed Adelaide 84-21. to Fremantle defeated Hawthorne 108-46. to Geelong down Carlton 70-44. St Kilda upset the Brisbane Lions 95-63. to Gold Coast defeated the GWS in a, in a classic and tight game 65-64. to While Sydney upset the Western Bulldogs 79-60. to Collingwood defeated Richmond 87 to 71. West Coast played North Melbourne Monday night. So Monday night football returns to the AFL. All that means is Melbourne moved back top while Geelong moved into third. And Sydney now moved two games clear in six. And they're only a game outside the four. While there's still only four points between Richmond in 12th and Fremantle in seventh. So again, an intriguing battle. Both of the top four clash and also for that bottom part of the eight in the AFL. Wimbledon, Jono, and a couple of big finals, especially for Australia, some Australian glory here. Ash Barty won her second Grand Slam and first Wimbledon after de- defeating Pliskova, 6-3, 6-7, 6-3. She became the first Australian woman to win Wimbledon since 1980 in Yvonne Gulligan-Cawley. So a great win for Ash Barty, Jono. Yeah, historic for, um, for Ash Barty in terms of finally getting that Wimbledon win, as well as just for... Um, women, women's Australian tennis as well, just to see her finally, you know, start performing on Grand Slam, Grand Slam stage. I think that um, in the past as well, you know, she's won a lot of um, different tennis events to kind of get her high in the rankings, but uh, hasn't always performed at the highest levels of what has been expected of a world number one at all the Grand Slam tournaments. But what what a match it really was. It was end to end. It was back and forth. Um, you know, really opened up there in that second and third set. So um, really good for Ash Barty, just proved to be too strong on the night. And um, congrats to her for, uh, for getting that win. And hopefully um, there's more to come for the rest of the year. Also a special shout out to Dylan Orcott, who won the, in the uh, wheelchair tennis section. So a great win for him as well for Dylan Orcott. Novak Djokovic, he won his sixth Wimbledon and 20th Grand Slam. So he now goes uh, tied with Rafael Nadal and Roger Federer on 20 Grand Slams. He defeated Italian Matteo Berrettini in four sets. Um, so Djokovic, Jono, he's one slam away from doing the Grand Slam this year. He's obviously already won the Australian, French and Wimbledon. He's looking strong, Jono, and looking like he may pass Nadal and Federer in regards to that Grand Slam race. Yeah, he's just honestly looking unstoppable lately. It's like he's found the fountain of youth and just reinvigorated his career almost. 
Um, I don't know who's going to be the one to take him down because it looks like both Nadal and Federer, we can see that they ser- that they have some serious injury concerns and they're getting up there in age and it's taking a toll on their body. So I don't think it's necessarily going to be one of them. It needs to be one of these up and coming stars. I think there's a lot knocking on the door, but right now, as it stands, Djokovic is just, has been on another level and you can see it. It's almost as if he, he does it with a sense of ease as well um, in these. And look, the game, the, the matches are a struggle for him in the sense of it's back and forth, but his demeanor of it and everything, it never seems like he gets overly frustrated. He has this calm, composed demeanor of it. Um, and yeah, he just looks too strong for the competition right now. So I, I definitely think that we're going to see him break some records. If not uh, the remainder of this year, it's definitely going to be in the next year or so because it looks like he's going to be going on for the next couple of years at the top level and um, is going to just keep on winning these Grand Slam tournaments. Yeah, Berrettini certainly gave him a contest, but in the end, Djokovic's class told and obviously wrapped it up in four sets. UFC 264 was highlighted by the Dustin Poirier and Conor McGregor. Uh, this was the trilogy. Um, they've obviously fought twice before. And uh, Poirier ended up winning by TKO after the first round. If you haven't seen this footage, if you uh, don't like seeing bad injuries in sport, probably don't see this. But uh, McGregor actually broke his ankle. Uh, he went for a kick, missed it, and, he's, and you can see his ankle just gave way. Obviously, on doctor's advice, Poirier was awarded the win. But uh, many people now asking, Jono, is this the end of McGregor at that elite level of USC fighting? He's 32 years old now. Um, he hasn't recorded a win in a while against the really um, top guys of UFC. So uh, could this possibly be the end for McGregor? Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I kind of actually just hope at this point that it's the end of McGregor. I mean, while, while he was in his heyday, it was great to watch. It was great entertainment. But now I'm not. Uh, I'm just kind of getting sick of it. It's, it's all the trash talk. It's all this. And I know that's all part of UFC. But then it just seems like he gets smacked around of these top opponents in the ring each time he does it. And clearly... I don't know if he's just continuously doing it as a pay for a paycheck or something like that, or if he actually thinks he can win these fights, but clearly he can't. And hopefully he just takes the back seat and look, he can chirp all he wants from the sideline, but I, I don't necessarily want to see him uh, enter that octagon, octagon again. Um, Cause I just don't think he can perform at that level anymore. And I think that the competition has just surpassed him. I think he, did a lot for UFC and he really just brought it to another level in terms of entertainment. But I think his time has come to take a step back and just now enjoy it. Just sit back, relax, enjoy it. You've made your millions. Enjoy what you can. Don't get back in the ring. Look what's happening right now. You know, now you, you had to get surgery on your broken ankle. Just sit back, relax. You got your millions. Enjoy your time. He has come out since the fight and said uh, the surgery did work, go well and it'll be about a six-week layoff and then we'll uh, we'll see what McGregor decides to do after that. The NBA, John, the final series is heating up. The Milwaukee Bucks have, have bitten back and it's 2-1 to Phoenix Suns. Giannis has had a couple of huge games the last couple. He scored 40-plus points. Uh, how have you seen uh, the first three games of the NBA final series? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think they've been great overall. I mean, of course, me being a Suns fan, I'm loving that we're that we're at least up 2-1 right now. I think it was kind of expected to go into Milwaukee and we're going to drop at least one of the two games. Um, so hopefully this is the one out of the two because we still have a second game to be played. Um, I just think as well, you know, you've kind of seen from the Phoenix Suns kind of waves at times where, you know, sometimes Devin Booker, Chris Paul are both firing and that's when they're looking really dangerous and a couple role players, but then at times our, our shooting goes quite cold. So you really have to start getting that stability. I think for the Bucks, essentially the keys to victory is that supporting cast. Um, you know, Giannis is, is on another level and what he's performing individually, but they need that supporting cast as well. 
to step up. And that's when they're successful is when everybody is firing, not just Giannis. Um, so the Suns, what they need to do is they need to lock down everybody. In my mind, let Giannis have his points, let him do his thing, but lock everyone else down. And that will lead you to success. And it's probably the same thing in, in terms of, um, you know, the Bucks for the, for the Phoenix Suns. They got to make sure Devin Booker doesn't get to the line, lock down CP3, and just make sure that supporting cast doesn't get hot. Because when the Suns are firing, especially from three-point land, that's when they're very, very dangerous. Um, but I think it's been quite entertaining. I know, um, you know, game three, a little bit of a blowout in terms of uh, Milwaukee blowing out the Suns. But we'll see how the Suns react. Like I said, it's expected to kind of drop one of two when you go to Milwaukee. So um, I'm really excited to see how now the Phoenix Suns bounce back and react and if the Bucs continue the success on home court as well. So it'll be really interesting to see what game four has in store for us. Yeah, it's all set up for game four in Milwaukee. Some sad news out of the Tokyo Olympics. Uh, Spectators have now been banned from attending the Olympics due to Tokyo facing obviously a huge second wave of COVID. They're averaging more than 600 COVID cases a day. Athletes will only also be allowed to arrive five days before their event and must leave two days after their finish. Um, a sad set of circumstances, Jono, um, with the upcoming Olympics. Yeah, it is. It is sad. And it's also sad that essentially it's it's the Olympics is something that, you know, when, when a country gets the Olympics, you want to be a celebration of games. And it's it's a huge ordeal. And, you know, the whole countries around it, the, the host city and everything. It's a huge, uh, you know, parades, fireworks, everything. And the city doesn't want it. The, the country doesn't want the games to happen there. You know, it's been pretty vocal in that because they're scared. You know, they're scared for what's happening currently in their country with the amount of COVID cases that they're, hap- that are, that they're having and now what potentially could be brought in. You know, you think about it and yes, maybe there's not, st- there's not fans in those arenas or anything, but those athletes are coming in from all different areas of the world. And then what about those uh, workers from those countries who are working the events who are still going to be there that then are going to maybe possibly take it back into their communities and then, you know, contaminate their communities with a different strain of COVID or whatever it is and just continue more outbreaks. So I can see why, you know, the, the home country is a bit reluctant in a sense of having this because of those scares. Um, and I don't know if just banning fans is going to do it or just having a limit in terms of how much the athletes can stay. Because, again, there needs to be some protection as well for those individuals who are actually working the events. So it's going to be really interesting to see because I think there's definitely going to be COVID cases within the athletes. I, I think there's there's not going to be really a way to avoid that necessarily. Um, we've been starting the Euros and then all other kind of international competitions I've been having. So it's going to be really interesting to see. But it's kind of, it is very sad to see, you know, the people of Tokyo kind of divided in this because it really should be just a total celebration so um, definitely splitting a lot of people and sad to kind of see but you know of course you're still looking forward to the games these athletes have put in a lot of work so I don't want to take away from from what these athletes are about to do um, they, they work their whole life for these one couple moments could be a 10 second run something like that so um, still want to give the respect to the athletes but very sad to see that it's divided a nation essentially in this case yeah it certainly won't be the Olympics that we are used to, uh, but hopefully we can still some, enjoy some uh, great athletic uh, abilities in, in all the different disciplines. So we'll see how that progresses. But the run is over now. Argentina are champions of South America. Argentina crowd around Lionel Messi. The world's greatest player finally has an international trophy. There can be no more arguments. Pressure on a 19-year-old. And now, it's a win. 
Ireland's firm knee the second time, 53 years after the first. A long wait is over for the Azzurri, but not for England. It's deja vu for Gareth Southgate. Well, over the weekend, two massive finals took place. Um, we had the Copper America final uh, between Argentina and Brazil take place Sunday morning here, Australian time, before the Euro 2020 final between England and Italy took centre stage on Monday morning. We'll start with the Copper America. And Argentina have ended their 28-year wait for a major international trophy as they down Brazil 1-0 at the Maracanã in Brazil. It was Angel de Maria goal, uh, which won it for Argentina. A defensive mistake, uh, but a beautifully taken goal by de Maria as he chipped um, Edison in the Brazilian goals. Um, Argentina now pull level with Uruguay with 15 Copper American titles. And I guess most importantly for a lot of neutrals and a lot of Argentinian fans also, it was Messi's first senior international trophy with Argentina, uh, which was obviously a massive moment for him and the Argentinian team. Jono, what did you make of the game firstly? Uh, very physical, as we'd probably expect between those two rivals. Not many chances. Uh, what did you make of the uh, game between Argentina and Brazil? Yeah, I mean, first off, hats off to Argentina for for finally getting over the hump in that sense and getting that trophy. And and, and for so much, you know, so many years they've had, uh, you know, dramas in a sense of happening in the Copa America and upsets. Um, and finally they were able to be on the other end of it this time as Brazil, in a sense, were going in as a little bit of favorites and they were actually able to upset them. Um, congrats to Messi as well. You could see after the game, what that meant for him, what that meant for his teammates as well to do for him. I think everybody in Argentina is, is relieved that he's finally now gotten some sort of an international trophy. You said that at senior level, um, I think it, it's phenomenal for them. I think in overall of the game, um, it definitely was not the game that I thought it was going to be. It was, it was not necessarily that end to end free flowing, um, you know, attacking style. It was very physical um, it was a bit just kind of kicking and hoping at times as well. Um, so essentially from, I think, a viewer's standpoint, it wasn't the prettiest of games. Um, but I think overall, the end result, you would have been happy either way. And the joy on everybody in Argentina's faces when they finally lift that trophy just kind of made up in my eyes for that game. I actually enjoyed seeing the, the post-match ceremonies and things like that almost more than the game. But um, yeah, it was just it was a great joyous occasion for Messi and Argentina. I also think a lot of credit needs to go to Argentinian coach Lionel Scolari, who are uh, Scaloni, sorry, not Scolari, um, who has brought this Argentinian team together. They certainly play with a, a real team ethos. Um, it may not be the most talented, as we've spoken before, most talented individual Argentinian team, um, but they certainly play as a collective and, and they're not yeah. just relying on Lionel Messi. Unusually, Messi actually had quite a quiet game, I thought, in terms of yeah, his definitely. attacking. He nearly he could have tied it up at the end with that chance yeah. um, at the end when he could have finished a counter-attack. Uh, but I actually thought Messi was was quite quiet in, in terms of his attacking play. I thought he ran himself into the ground. I've never seen Messi tackle and, and cover so much yep. ground considering he's 34 years old now. Um, so I thought that was an amazing effort by Messi. The other player that stood out for me in that Argentinian midfield is Rodrigo De Paul. Um, who's there's rumours that he is going to Atletico Madrid this year. Um, he, I thought he was immense in the midfield, really shutting down the creativity, especially of Paqueta, um, even the Neymar of the Brazilian side. Um, I thought that he put in a, an immense effort, um, especially when Argentina were under a lot of pressure, especially that last 20 minutes when Brazil were piling the pressure on. Yeah. Um, they really held strong, which I thought was impressive. On the Brazilian side, I was 
a little bit um, disappointed by Tite and his and his team. Um, I expected probably a little bit more, a little bit more creativity out of, of that squad and putting that Argentinian defense under a little bit more pressure. What did you make of the Brazilian performance, Jono, and, and Neymar, I guess, especially in a game of such importance? Yeah, I think I think in terms of Brazil, um, as you kind of pointed out as well, Argentina did a great job in actually locking down Neymar. I think that, you know, there were some flashes of brilliance from him, but we said at the beginning, it was a physical game. So every single time Neymar had the ball, he just, he got hit, you know, every single time. And yes, it, you know, that's how uh, Neymar plays, you know, where he draws fouls and things like that, but he got hit every single time. They weren't going to make it easy for him. So I think that that was essentially some of the keys to success um, for Argentina is kind of make it that chippy game, make it where they don't have the opportunity to dribble at you at pace, because that's where Brazil is dangerous with those attacking players that they have. You know, they want to dribble at you. They want to go full speed at you. So I think that they did a great job in terms of stepping up and just being physical and making sure that somebody's in everybody's back as soon as they, as soon as they get over half. Um, but then as well, you know, like you said, with Argentina side, I think Messi, yes, was definitely quiet in that game. Um, I think everybody else really stepped up. I think that just really showed that, you know, Messi did all the hard work in, in, in my eyes in the group stages and, and getting them to this point. And then it was almost like he was, ha- you know, handing it to his team saying, hey, you know, we all need to step up for this. I've brought you this far, but I need everybody to step up in order to make this happen. And that's exactly what they did is I feel like that they secured a lot of those positions. They were essentially, you know, Di Maria, he finished the chance that he needed to. They didn't have a, a load of chances, but, you know, he finished what was needed, even though it was a defensive lapse. Um, but overall, I just think, yeah, Brazil was never able to just have that opportunity to just run at them with pace. There was a couple times, but because Argentina was so solid in terms of just getting in behind and just making sure they put a little nudge, putting a foot in, putting a body in every single time, it just knocked Brazil's game off completely. And so we didn't get to see the Brazil that everybody wanted to see. Instead, as we said, we saw back and forth, kicking long, kind of chase, scrummy game. Um, but that led to Argentina's favor overall, as we saw, and, and they, in, in the end, were champions because of it. I guess with a World Cup 18 months away, Jonathan, so not that far, how do you see the two big teams out of South America in comparison to, I say, their European counterparts, obviously we've seen competing in the Euros? How did you see Argentina and Brazil in terms of their possible World Cup hopes um, in 18 months' time? Yeah, I think it's... Um... It's, it's tough as well because I feel like the Copa America is typically a, a little bit more rough and tumble as well. Um, so it is a lot more of a nitty gritty um, game in, in terms of comparing it to the Euros where sometimes you might have a lot more cleaner um, bits of play. Uh, so it is hard to compare side by side. But overall, I mean, both Argentina and Brazil, I think that they, that they will be a force to be reckoned with in the next World Cup. Now, did Argentina do enough to show that they're possibly going to be competing um, to take the whole, you know, to, to take the World Cup? Um, I don't know. I think Brazil um, throughout the tournament showed flashes of brilliance, but then also showed some weak points. So I think it's for them to just make sure that they play consistent the whole tournament. Now, if they play consistent the whole tournament, I think they're, they're definitely going to be one of the favorites there. Um, but it just comes down to consistency and just making sure that that when they attack offensively, they attack as a unit as well. Can't just, they can't just rely on the individual brilliance of their players because they do have the talent to, to every now and then do that. But as they get further and further in the World Cup, you're not just going to be able to rely on the one player. So they need to make sure that they attack as a unit. But I think it's going to come down out of those two. I think they can compete with anybody in Europe or amongst the world. 
but it's going to come down to who's going to be more consistent within the tournament because they didn't necessarily show consistency throughout. And that was my only, that was my big takeaways. Some of the European teams and the Euros showed a bit more consistency than let's say both Argentina and Brazil showed in the Copa America. Well, I think what this game has done has certainly cemented Lionel Messi's legacy as, yeah. as one of the greats of world football. Um, obviously, the international trophy was the one thing missing off his resume. He may not get a World Cup on there, but um, he certainly inspired his team. And he obviously won player of the tournament for his consistent efforts throughout the tournament. So uh, congratulations to Lionel Messi and Argentina. So from one huge final to another, it was Monday morning in the crowning of the European champions. So the crowning of Euro 2020, the final between England and Italy. Italy um, won the game after an epic penalty shootout. Unfortunately, though, we will start with um, some disgusting racist abuse that uh, English players Marcus Rashford, Jaden Sancho and Bukaya Sacco had to endure after the game online after missing their spot kicks in the penalty shootout. The FA obviously come out condemning the comments and saying they will continue to do all they can to stamp discrimination out of the game. But Jono, just scenes we really do not want to see, but we continue to see it. Also, we have to mention some of the behaviour by the English fans um, after the game um, in terms of apparently uh, beating up some Italian fans and also trashing some parts of Wembley and stamping the stadium uh, before the game had started with people who hadn't got tickets. So um, hopefully... Um, authorities will will come down hard on, on those people that uh, did these actions. But again, John, unfortunately, online abuse raises its ugly head. Yeah, it's just disgusting actions, um, to say the least. You know, it's just, it's it's so sad to see a nation that loves football, loves what it brings, and everybody loves the fact that they're so passionate about it as well. And, you know, a lot of people jumped on England's bandwagon wanting to see them win this and everything like that. But then these instances can define you as well sometimes as a nation. It's, it's sad to see that, you know, there's, there's a couple ad, bad apples in the bunch essentially, but they seem to keep on popping up. And to see racial abuse, to see the violence afterwards, to see even the stampeding before, you know, knocking down the barriers before the game even starts. You can go back to earlier in the cup when, you know, the fans, there was the, the, the German girl, a young girl, a German fan crying on the screen after Germany was losing and, and England fans were cheering to that, things like that. Like, that's just disgusting behavior all up. And it's really disappointing to see, uh, you know, a place like England that has such rich history and that you really want to support that, that this is a continuous trend sometimes with these kinds of things. So really sad to see that this again, somehow, you know, comes up in these big occasions and we just need to eliminate all this type of behavior from the game completely. Um, it's, there's just no room for it. And I'm just very disappointed to see this happening once again, and it happens everywhere. Yes. But to see this happen, m- multiple different instances um, happen with England. It's, it's very disappointing to see this, especially after the great success of my eyes, regardless if they won or lost it, great success in the tournament, but then to have it capped off with something like this, it's just, it's just hideous in all levels. Well, the fight continues against racism and it's a fight that looks like it'll uh, be going for a while. But focusing on the field, as we mentioned, Italy defeated England. The game ended 1-1 and Italy were able to hold their nerve in the penalty shootout, winning it 3-2. It uh, was their first European Championship uh, win since 1968. So quite a long wait for the Italians as well. Luke Shaw scored the opener for uh, England. It was actually the quickest goal in the European final history after he 
put the England ahead after one minute and 57 seconds. Italy, though, um, after that, grew into the game and dominated possession and got a much um, deserved equaliser through one of their spiritual leaders, Leonardo Bonucci, after 67 minutes. And as we said, uh, the game went all the way. Um, it was a bit up and down that penalty shootout. We thought Jorginho was going to win it for the Italians, <laughs> but uh, Pickford pulled up a save. But then, unfortunately, uh, the precious was a little bit too much for Rashford Sancho. And then, unfortunately, there's always a villain, I guess, in these scenarios. And Bukaya Saka, the young 19-year-old, stepped up and missed his or was saved by Donnarumma in goals, which won it for the Italians. Jono, obviously, as Italian, you love the win and obviously been celebrating all day. But how did, what did you make of the game? What Did it go uh, how you thought it might in terms of uh, the way England and Italy approached the contest? Yeah, I mean, first off, I'm just so over the top that Italy actually was able to win. Um, I think in terms of looking at, you know, what happened with the World Cup, not making the World Cup um, in this in this last one in Russia, huge disappointment for Italy and then coming back and going on this huge unbeaten streak as well to be able to then take home the European Cup, I think is phenomenal. Um, you know, the game didn't necessarily go exactly how I thought, you know, or, or thought it would. Um, I think overall, if you take the span of the whole game, um, I think the correct team won. I think Italy deserved it. I think if you even look at the whole tournament as well, they have been the best team in the tournament. So I'm glad just based on that as well that they were able to win. Um, I think, though, that the game for, especially for the neutrals, this would have been a great game to watch. I mean, it had everything. I mean, England came out first two minutes. There was a goal. It looked like England was dominating for that first about 20, 30 minutes. And then you saw Italy kind of get its groove. Halftime came around, then Italy just kept on stepping up, stepping up, and just seemed like England just kind of sat back and soaked up the pressure and wanted to defend. Um, and then even in extra time, you saw that first bit of extra time. You know, it seemed like Italy, they, they possibly could get a little break. Um, and then that second half of extra time, it almost was like, hey, England's now knocking on the door as well. So it had a little bit of everything. And then what dramas in the penalty shootout as well. I mean, that is just no one expects that many misses, saves, whatever you want to call them. That is just incredible. I mean, I know even me, as soon as Italy missed one, I thought, no, nope, this is done. England's going to put them all away. Something else happens. And again, I'm like, no, nope, it's done. Again, something else happens. You know, Jorginho stepping up. He misses. You're like, okay, this is clearly over. Not meant to be. And then something like that happens. It's just incredible. This was just a, a wave of emotions. Um, and look, I'm so happy that um, Italy, you know, ended on top. But I don't think that any English fans should really be holding their head too low because I think that incredible tournament, they did a great job overall. And little, I mean, look, they weren't necessarily the best team on the day, but they're still in the game the whole time. And that's all that matters. You know, they're still in the game. They had the lead for most of the game. So they were there. They were knocking on the door the whole time. Anything could have happened. And when you go into penalties, you know, it's a flip of the coin sometimes, you know, it's just, but today it was just the nerves, nerves got to them. Um, but, um, but just so, so excited that, that Italy was able to win. And I think this is just such a good redemption for them. Like I said, after not making the world cup and being able to just go on this huge unbeaten streak is just incredible. Um, not the game that I, that I wanted, but very, very happy that they ended up uh, victorious and are now, um, the champions of Europe. What did you make of, uh, Italy's especially dominance in the midfield? Obviously ended the game with 62% possession, uh, Verratti, Barella, and Jorginho, who starred in that three, obviously we saw Locatelli um, and obviously Mancini made some substitutions during the game. But what did you make of Italy's dominance once they did get on top and the way they would dictate the tempo and the pace of the game um, 
and obviously, obviously got that equaliser, and obviously we're looking to push for that win. What did you make of how Italy, especially coming from that Spanish game where they were actually dominated mm. by the Spanish midfield? Um, how did you how did you find in terms of the way they turned it around in this contest? Yeah, I think I think the Spanish game was actually you know against Spain was actually a good wake up call for them as well because they realized that they can't just cruise things cruise through this tournament that they actually have to all step up as well and make sure that they play as a unit. I think they did a great job as playing as one today. Um, I think Verratti was was critical in there as well. He his movement on and off the ball was incredible. Um, you know, Jorginho, I think again pretty consistent throughout. Um, I don't think he necessarily did anything that was that was um, that was crazy throughout the day throughout the game, but I think Verratti had a little bit more deadly movements in and out. Um, and I think that what they did really well is was essentially find those wing players. And also one thing to note as well was. Chiellini also moved up the field quite a bit as well. And what he did was then he drew in a defender to him and opened up that space for someone else. And that's then what allowed uh, most of the time, it wasn't necessarily Borello, it was mainly Jorginho and Verratti then kind of stepping back and just demanding that ball back, playing it out wide, getting it back, moving it around. So what Chiellini was able to do was draw on that extra defender and open up those pockets of space everywhere. And that's what allowed Italy essentially to continue to move up the field. So I think that the midfield battle was almost actually won a lot of the times because of that center back moving up, progressing up the field and just creating a little bit of a confusion, I would say for that English defense. Um, and that's just what almost made them sit back that much more, because if you looked at that first 20 or so, you know, Benucci and Chiellini were, were, were standstill. They were in the back line the whole time. It wasn't until Italy started finding their stride in that about 35 minutes in 30 minutes in, but then you saw them progress up the field. And I think that's what really opened it up for them as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the midfield battle was key and that's what led to a lot of success. And I mean, the possession stats are, are crazy that, you know, they were able to go from a game where they got out possessed completely to now being the ones that held possession the whole game. Um, so incredible there in the midfield, there was definitely um, hats off to the Italian team for, for that midfield dominance there today. The other battle I thought was won by the Italians was in the managerial battle. I thought uh, Mancini actually came out better today in terms of his counterpart in Gareth Southgate. I thought Mancini got his substitutions absolutely right today. Um, Obviously, the unfortunate injury to Chiesa, who I thought was magnificent today, was probably dangerous player on the field. Uh, Every time he got the ball, England were struggling with his pace and his directness. Um, But I thought the way Mancini rotated his squad and used his squad today, I thought was magnificent. I thought Southgate missed a trick with the way he utilized his squad. Obviously he started with that three, five or three, four, three formation, brought Trippier in um, a little bit more defensive solidity on that side, pushed Luke Shaw up, obviously worked early on with, with both combining for the goal. Uh, but I thought they lack creativity. They, they, and in terms of the introduction of Jack Grealish, I thought was too late. Yeah. Um, and those attacking options, which England have on the bench, they have so much depth and quality on that bench. But I thought the way he utilized that was poor today. Um, and then obviously only bringing on Rashford and Sancho for the penalty kicks, which I think, I never think that's a great no. way and utilization of players because these players you're putting on in a highly pressurized situation. They haven't, been in the game, they haven't had a feel for the game, and obviously they're expected to put a ball in the back of the net, even though it's it sounds and looks easy. The other part where I thought Southgate missed a trick was the substitution of Henderson when he brought yep. Henderson back off to bring on Rashford for that penalty shootout. I thought Henderson would have been a key figure um, as experience for that penalty shootout and possibly could have taken a penalty kick. He has taken penalties before, and 
And obviously that highly pressurized situation, um, it's a lot to put on a, well, Rashford at 23, Sancho at 21, and Saka only at 19. So do you yeah. think also Southgate possibly, he's come out after the game and admitted he was the one that made that choice. So it's, it's not the players, it was him. Do you think he missed a trick there in terms of uh, both the way he he utilised his squad today, but then also the way he, uh, the penalty shooters that he did put forward? Yeah, look, uh, I think that a lot of things that Southgate did in this, in this game, from my view, was, was essentially wrong. I think, you know, at the first, as we said, in the first 30 minutes, 20 minutes, you might have said, oh, wow, what he did in terms of Trippier and Shaw, kind of that wingback position was right. But then what happened is Italy figured it out, essentially, and they started getting to the rhythm. Then at halftime, there was no adjustments. And that's where the problem was, is when you saw that Italy then started dominating possession, getting up the field, creating chances, you need to make some sort of adjustment as well. And there was no adjustment to how they were playing. They were playing also, for me, way too direct, just even from the back. You saw Maguire just always kicking it up the field, essentially. You saw Pickford. You know, every, every single goal kick essentially today was just up the field. There was never a short, you know, quick, short option or something like that. When you look on the flip side, you look at Italy. I don't think Donnarumma ever kicked a goal kick up the field. He always played it short to someone and they slowly worked it up the field. So when you play it and you just go direct up the field every single time, there's a 50-50 chance that the ball is going to just end up right back to you. and You're going to be back under pressure. So just put them under pressure again and again and again. And then, as you said as well, when you have such depth in that bench, you've got to bring some of those subs in and you got to bring them on a lot earlier. Jack Grealish possibly could have been one of the most, uh, you know, could have been the best player of the whole tournament, essentially. He has the skills to do that and the capability. And yet he was so underutilized the whole tournament. And in this game in particular, when you need somebody just to keep the ball, draw some fouls, break up that play of Italy, that's the player that you need to bring in. Or also, you look at the Italian back line. Why is a Rashford, Sancho, all those players, I know Foden was injured today, but why are those players not getting on when they have the pace to just bomb up and down and just outpace Chiellini and Bonucci all day long? So to do that is, is, just, is just absurd. And I 100% agree with you as well at the end. I'm not a fan of just bringing someone on for a penalty. I, don't, I do not think that your first kick of the game could be a penalty. When you get brought on for that, the pressure, not only to make your penalty, penalty, but to know that you got brought on for one job and your only job is to make that penalty. That just builds that pressure so much more. Um, so yeah, overall, I think, you know, Southgate got a lot wrong. I also think that his comments afterwards where he was basically saying, yes, you know, it's good that he's taking ownership, but I always said, you know, we worked on it in training and we picked who's going to be taking in training. Well, in training is very different from in the game. And I really think that you should also be picking players based on their form currently in the game and the players who step up and say, Hey, I want to take it. Um, and so I, I do not think that, you know, just because you had a training drill where, you know, somebody made a million penalties that didn't miss in training and your best player who normally makes them all misses doesn't mean you don't put that best player up there to take it. So I, I, I hate that as, as, as a managerial decision. Um, so I definitely think that he got, he got essentially that wrong. And, and Mancini did everything right in terms of his substitutions, changed his style of play in terms of bringing out a Mobley and putting on other players up there. Um, so yeah, clearly this, Essentially today, the, the difference were margins, and that margin could have been the difference managerial-wise today, and that's why Italy were successful, and unfortunately, England were not successful today. And interestingly, the two players that did score for England are two of their most experienced players in Harry Kane and Harry Maguire. Both yep. put their penalties away. So 
as I said, it's it's they're all professional footballers. They should all obviously be able to take a, a spot kick. But as you said, it's very different from training and then the pressure of not only the people in the stadium, but the worldwide audience yep. that was watching England. I, I read a statistic. I'm not sure if this is true, but on social media, there's apparently 4,000 pubs in London. You couldn't get one table at any of those <laughs> pubs during the game. Wouldn't and doubt it. So it just shows you the interest that was in this game, the amount of eyes that were on it. So there's just an immense amount of pressure. I believe Southgate has done a lot of good for this English team. I believe he's brought a calmness to the squad. And I believe from everything that we understand, the players love to play for him. But where I think he got found out tactically today in terms of the way you need to adjust to a football game and yeah. when you need to sometimes go at a team, have the confidence in your players, not to just sit back. Italy are too good a team for England to sit. I found after about 25 minutes, England almost just sat there and just invited yeah. that pressure on from Italy. Italy are too good a team to just sit there for England to defend 90 minutes a lead. I think England, if they're going to grow and have a chance at this next World Cup, which I believe they have a squad capable of definitely, going deep in definitely. that World Cup, they also need Gareth Southgate to grow as a manager. Yep. He must learn from this experience and he needs to show a development as him as a manager and he also reflected in his team in 18 months because I believe in terms of the way his team played in 2018 in that World Cup run and to how they play now, there hasn't been a huge shift. Yeah. There has been some new players brought in. And I, I love seeing some of these young players because they are really talented young players, but they need to be nurtured and they need to be let go. England have to have the confidence that they can go at these teams. Don't always have to obviously build a defensive solidity. You need a strong defense, I believe, to to be able to build a team. And obviously Italy epitomized that this yep. in this Euros. But also Italy have the confidence to go at teams and knock the ball around, keep possession, break open teams with little runs, little triangles. Don't Take just sit back and play on the counter. Because the other disappointing aspect of this morning for me was where Harry Kane was receiving the ball. Yep. If I was Kalini or Bonucci, he was holding the ball out magnificently. And obviously he was part of that first goal with that pass out to Trippier. But you want Kane in the box. He didn't have yep. a single shot today. If I was, if I'm the Italian centre back or the Italian defence, I've done a magnificent job not to let yep. Harry Kane have one shot today. Um, so I believe England and, and Gareth Southgate need to use this as a massive learning experience. Um, and hopefully, in 18 months' time, we'll see further growth of this team because I do believe England possibly have a, a really special group of players here that could do something um, on the world stage and they can certainly compete if they're let go they can certainly compete with the best teams both here in Europe and in the world so it'll be interesting to see what um what Gareth Southgate does but also talking about where does this place Italy Jono do you think in the next 18 months Mancini's done a magnificent job to get them here especially after he said they didn't qualify for the 2018 World Cup they've undefeated in over 30 games. How do you see Italy place now going into that uh, World Cup uh, in Qatar next year? Yeah, look, I mean, I think that they um, they potentially show that they're one of the best teams right now. Um, I mean, look at the road that they had to go through as well in terms of getting to this finals. Um, they beat some really great teams along the way. So I think that they're a force to be reckoned with. Um, I think it's just... They just need to make sure they continue to play as a team and as a unit because that's how they become successful. Now, one in it's what about 18 months away, so about a year and a half. You know, it's not like it's necessarily that long away, but I will say 
The only thing is when you have two center backs who are relatively old, we, we have to find uh, essentially people that we can start bringing in for them as well and that can perform at the levels that they perform because that's the difference as well. We might have a lot of great defenders in Italy, but we need to have ones that can perform at those levels because that's what we're used to. And that was essentially, you know, that anchor today. And, and like I said, the intelligence of Keeling to, to move forward as well, to, to take fouls when he needs to, things like that. Um, Benucci, the balls that he delivers. So I think it's really important that Italy really make sure that we secure that center back positions as well, because a year and a half could be a big thing for Chiellini and Bonucci is, you know, they might be retiring. They might not be, they might just be too old to play at that, that level and that, that speed um, at that point, because a lot could change in that by then. So I think Italy as a whole are definitely going to be one of those top five teams um, could be knocking on the door, but they just got to make sure they keep playing collectively. And they also need to start finding essentially a solution for that center backs that we know in the next couple of years are going to be moved out of the Italian national team. So I think that's the biggest area of concern for them. For me right now is that center back positions. Well, overall though, Italy were the best team. I think emphasizing team in this Euro 2020, Uh, they deserve to win. They, they play football from, from game one all the way to the final. They faced challenges and were were able to overcome those challenges. I think what Roberto Mancini has done with this squad is is quite unbelievable. Um, and it would be really interesting to see uh, how he does at the World Cup. On the flip side, I think, as you said, I think England did magnificent to make this final. Um, yes, they played six of their seven games at Wembley. And yes, they may have had a slightly easier run. But still, to play under that pressure, a lot of young boys, this is their first major tournament. Um, I think they did magnificent. As I said, credit to Gareth Southgate for for bringing a collective to that group. Uh, He certainly has brought that. There's no egos. um, The team as a collective. But as I said, the next stage for England is, I believe, they need to play a little bit more aggressively and have more faith in the quality they have. I think that is the biggest thing that's come out of this tournament and the biggest thing that's came out against a quality opposition like Italy's. Have faith in the quality you have and utilizing that squad correctly, especially game management. Uh, periods in that game but uh, overall John it's been a magnificent Euros Definitely. I'm not sure what I'm going to do or watch now that it's <laughs> over it's a bit sad uh, but hopefully we've got a World Cup in 18 months time so we can look at least look forward to that exactly now it's been uh, it's been great it's it's been such an entertaining Euros Copa America everything um, and yeah I mean I think the future is bright for England and a lot of those young players as well um, they, they did a great job and yeah, it just comes down to the the firepower that England have. If they can just hone in all that firepower, they'll be one of the the threats of this next World Cup. Um, but the the sky's the limit for them. Um, but we'll see. But congrats to Argentina and Italy um, for winning both the Copa America and then the uh, the Euro. So it was just great to see. And I'm just going to keep celebrating until uh, the World Cup, I guess. <laughs> you keep celebrating, John. Eight eight months, and then who knows? Maybe Italy will do the double. Oh, I'd love you to see never it. Know these days. You never know in football. As always, we end the show with uh, five quick questions. Uh, this week, Jono is asking me. So ready to go, Jono? Let's do it. All right, question number one. So we had a jam-packed weekend of sport. Uh, you know, UFC, tennis, Euros, Copa America, basketball, everything. What was your standout moment from this weekend? Uh, it's hard to go past Ash Barty. I just think... Uh, it was magnificent to see her win, not just because 
of her obviously winning Wimbledon, but just what she represents, um, I thought it was amazing. And the other result that I did like seeing was in the warm-up, Nigerian 90, the USA 87 in the basketball, eh? The Nigerians, <laughs> eh? Know, the Kevin Durant and the boys played and the Nigerians a little bit too good. So that was the other little result I uh, saw. And we, Patty Mills, getting a three-point on the buzzer to beat the Argentinians. That's true, yeah. Uh, I did see that. Lot, but uh, lot, Ash Barty, I think, in terms of... Yeah, Ash Barty, in terms of everything, I thought was an outstanding achievement by her. No, that was definitely, yeah, it was definitely great by her. Um, next question. So, you know, Messi finally won the Cup America, finally winning that senior international tournament. Uh, now, does that have any effect on him staying at Barcelona or not? So is he a little bit happier, maybe going to stay? Does it have any effect at all? I think he will stay at Barca regardless um, of that result. I think obviously it's going to put him in a happier mood coming back (laughs) to Barcelona, but I think that deal will get done um, because as we've said before, there's realistically, there's only probably a couple of teams that could afford to bring Messi in. Whether or not they want to spend the money to bring Messi in, I think he'll end up staying at Barca. Yeah. No, I think he's going to stay at Barca. I just think he's going to be that much happier now. And moving on, we'll go to a little bit of an Olympic talk. So Team USA for women's soccer is looking to be the first team to win the Olympics after winning the World Cup. So they have a lot of returning players, about 17 or 18 returning players from that World Cup squad. Do you think that they're actually going to be able to do it? They will certainly go in hot favorites. Obviously, I hope our Matildas, the Australian <laughs> team, has a magnificent tournament. But obviously, we've had a change of coach, and there has been a few uh, interesting results in the lead-up. Uh, but the USA certainly will go in favorites. They've just got such a strong squad and such depth. Yeah. Um, in that squad and they've got a lot of that squad know how to win those big tournaments so they'll be determined uh, to win the olympics yeah i'm hoping that that veteran play kind of bringing back a lot of those players who are at the world cup um really uh, is the difference there and they actually end up taking out the gold um now sticking with the olympics and another team for the united states in the basketball as you kind of mentioned before a little bit of struggles but with the roster, with the names of, you know, the likes of Devin Booker, Kevin Durant, Damian Lillard, Jason Tatum, just to name a few, um, you know, is it theirs to lose essentially? And is it going to be a bust if they don't win Olympic gold? It always is if the dream team doesn't win. So uh, what a catalog of players that is. So yeah. uh, yes, I think if the USA don't win gold, I think it has to be considered a bust, but maybe Giannis and the Greeks will <laughs> step up. Or you've got Donkic. Yeah. We qualify with Slovenia Luka. for the first That's time. True. So uh, it'd be good to see some of those other Europeans as well yeah. uh, playing for their countries. But I think the USA Dream Team, um, they're always a great watch anyway. Yeah, when you have a team just made up of all all-stars and some of the best in the league, you, you got to go in as hot favorites. And if they don't win, that's a disappointment in my eyes. Um, last question. We have State of Origin Game 3. Who's going to win? Is it going to be New South Wales to clean out the series or is Queensland finally going to get a win on the board? Well, there's a much-changed Queensland team, so I think it will be a tougher test for New South Wales and obviously our third game in Queensland. Maybe we couldn't have done any more for Queensland to win this series, but I actually think New South Wales is going to win this series 3-0. I think it's going to be a magnificent effort considering we haven't played one game south of the border. So um, up the Blues on Wednesday night. There we go. Up the blues. And it'll definitely be interesting to see um, who, who takes out this game three. It'll be a good one to watch. Well, that brings to the end another episode of Behind the Lights with me, Seb. And me, Jana. As always, thank you for your support and good night.